Um, our reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 17. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of God. Thanks for that, Gordon. Uh, Folks, just before I pray for us, please don't um, forget Martin and Raphael. We are a redeemed family of servants on mission. One of the ways we express that is through our ministers um, being involved in cross-border mission projects and relationships, rather, rather than projects. Uh, So both Martin and Raphael are in the DRC. Martin is heading to Tanzania at some point. Please remember them in your prayers. And also remember David Kobedi. David is leading a team of our students uh, into Mozambique on Monday. And so they're driving up, so please pray for traveling mercies and pray that it's a really fruitful time with the Mozambican students. We're bringing two groups of students together, the South African students and the Mozambican students, and we're going to have a student uh, camp up there. So please pray for that and pray that it's, it's really fruitful for the gospel. We're going to come to our passage. Why don't you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're so grateful that you speak to us. And Father, today as we hear your voice, we pray that we would not harden our hearts. We pray that you would soften our hearts by your Spirit so that we might hear the voice of our Father for his sons and daughters this morning in a very real way. And Father, may, may you point us to the Lord Jesus. May you exhort and encourage us to, to look to him and to follow after him. And may we leave here uh, strengthened in our resolve and trusting in your goodness to do just that. Amen. 
Suffering in the Christian life is a prickly and difficult topic, and if I'm honest with you, it's one I would prefer to avoid. But that's not a luxury that uh, the writer to the Hebrews can afford. He's also preaching to his church, and he simply cannot avoid the topic of suffering, because that's their lived experience. That's what they're going through as he writes. And not suffering in general terms, the way we might suffer just by living in this broken world. They are suffering the intense and unique suffering of being under persecution. The fierce heat that comes from hostility to their allegiance to King Jesus. They are under enormous pressure, and that pressure is only likely to intensify. And so they are in danger of collapsing, of caving in, of compromising in their allegiance to Christ, of falling away. Now, if you've been with us through this series over the past three years, and just last week we started again, if you've been with us, the preacher has responded by calling them back to faith. He has responded by helping them to see the all-surpassing the all supremacy of Christ in its fullness, by reminding them of all the heroes of the faith who looked to the all-surpassing supremacy of Christ, who, who fought the good fight and who finished the race. Those heroes are now gathered in glory. They're standing and they're cheering for those who come after them. And the preacher concludes his appeal like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Next, the preacher is going to press a little deeper into the, into the issue of their suffering, and he's going to try and give them resources to help them cope it's a difficult topic. Before we actually get to what the preacher does with suffering, it's worth us just pausing for a moment and thinking about what our culture does with suffering. That's a question worth asking, isn't it? Because the question of suffering is so often posed as an accusation against God, so often thrown in our faces as believers, as if suffering exposes faith in God to be a sham somehow. But I'll tell you what, let's, let's, let's try this. Let's put the shoe on the other foot. Let's ask the same question of our culture. On your view of the world, what do you do about pain and suffering? I once listened to an interview between uh, two Johns, John Matham and John Lennox. John Matham, for those of you who, uh, who haven't heard of him, which is probably most of us, he's a radio talk show host in Cape Town. And he's honestly one of the most brilliant minds you'll ever encounter. John Lennox is no slouch either, professor of mathematics at Oxford University. The difference between the two Johns, one is an atheist, that's John Matham, and one is a disciple of Jesus Christ. The other difference is that in a radio interview, the host has all the power. So listening to this interview was a bit like watching a heavyweight boxing match. 
Matham is just bombing Lennox with every hard question he can muster. Lennox is sort of bobbing and weaving and skillfully fending off the blows, but he's not really landing any of his own. And at, at that point, most would say that the bout has to go to John Matham, the talk show host. Until this question. Until the question of suffering. So Matham launches the haymaker at Lennox. What about suffering? How can your God allow suffering, your good God? How can he allow suffering? And then very sensitively, with real personal care, Lennox gives him a a carefully and no doubt prayerfully thought out and considered response. And then he finishes with a question of his own. On your humanist view, John, that through reason and science we are one day going to reach utopia, what about all the suffering that has come before? Centuries and centuries of human suffering, what do you do with that? What hope do you have? What hope do you offer ordinary people who are not going to reach that utopia? What hope can atheism offer ordinary people? And of course, John Matham didn't have an answer. It was as if Lennox had landed the knockout punch, and the knockout punch was a hug. This is the key. As difficult a topic as suffering is, as complex and personal as it is, the Christian faith has real resources to help us cope, real tools. Not all the answers to every question. So let's be frank and honest about that. But real truth that offers real hope. Materialism, atheism, has nothing. Your suffering is meaningless. And then you die. So when we look around at our culture, anyone who's influenced by Western materialism, and that's all of us, because of the reach of Western culture through the media, through social media, all of us are influenced by Western materialism. Anyone who's influenced by Western materialism is absolutely terrified of suffering. We live in fear. We run as hard as we can in the opposite direction, which means you spend your whole life running. And when suffering inevitably catches up, as it does, You do whatever it takes to numb the pain. Whatever it takes. You distract yourself with work. You drown the pain in pleasure. You dull the pain with anesthetics, chemical or otherwise. Anything but face up to the pain. That's the Western coping mechanism. Denial and self-medication. Those of us more under the influence of a traditional African worldview, suffer under the same burden of fear, but with a different diagnosis and a different coping mechanism. Because on the traditional African worldview, the pain has a cause. There is disharmony somewhere in the family structure. And of course, the family structure extends to the living dead, and someone in the extended family structure has been offended or mistreated in some way. Either that or an enemy has launched a spiritual attack. Now to deal with this spiritual problem, you turn to a spiritual doctor who will show you how to get relief. 
And you may get that relief, but it's short-lived. It doesn't deal with the constant debilitating fear of being subject to the forces of the ever-present forces of suffering that are just not under your control. So our culture has different ways of dealing with pain. But the underlying reality is the same. Suffering is random. It's chaotic. It's meaningless. And then we die. The Bible offers us a very different perspective. And it's a rich, multifaceted perspective. So I want to stress that what we're going to deal with this morning is just one facet of that diamond. Just one facet. It's not, by any means, it's not all the Bible has to say on the topic of suffering. So please hear that. If you feel something's missing somehow, it's because we're only looking at the one facet. But it is where we're going to focus because it's where the preacher to the Hebrews focuses. And it has so much to offer in and of itself. Just this one facet. In Hebrews 12, the Christian life is presented as a race. But it's not a three-legged race. This is not the egg and spoon race at the primary school fun day. This is a grueling ultramarathon. And because it's an ultramarathon, there are two things we have to say about it. Number one, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Number two, it comes with pain baked in. Ask any marathon runner. There is no such thing as a marathon without pain. It doesn't exist. The preacher, remember, is trying to give his people who are running this race... This race called the Christian life, the life of faith. He is trying to give his people who are running the race and suffering the pain that comes along with the race, he's trying to give them resources to cope. He's trying to get them through to the end. He's trying to give them what they need to get them through to the end. But the voice of the preacher and therefore the voice of God Almighty through the preacher in this passage, is the voice of a father or a coach. Now, just imagine you have a little girl running around, playing a game. She falls over and scrapes her knee. The way a mother reacts and the way a father reacts in that same situation is often going to be different. Okay, it's a generalization, but often it'll be different. Often mothers will nurture and comfort. Shame, poppet. Let's kiss it better. Often fathers will encourage and exhort. Come on, it's okay. Let's get up. Let's get back in the game. It's going to be fine. You see the difference? In the face of our suffering, we have both of those voices in the Scriptures. Both of them are there. God speaks into our suffering with both the voice of comfort and with the voice of encouragement. Here in our passage, he is speaking with the latter. He is speaking as a father with the voice of encouragement. What does he say? In the face of suffering, our father calls his children to stay focused, to keep going, to be brave, and to watch out. Those four things. Stay focused, 
Keep going. Be brave. And watch out. Stay focused. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from such uh, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin the sin of a hostile world you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood as you struggle as you suffer consider him fix your eyes on him fix your eyes on Jesus and know this whatever you are suffering Your king has suffered more. For your sake, in your place. Seems to be something of a psychological truism that when you are suffering, there is relief in knowing you are not alone. Why is there relief? Because suffering, the nature of suffering is that it's so isolating. It isolates us. And so there's relief. Relief comes through knowing you are not alone in your suffering. Others have also suffered. And they have overcome. What you are going through, they have walked through right to the very end. They are living proof that this pain, whatever this pain is, this pain can be beaten. It can be overcome. That sort of solidarity is why we have support groups in this church that are led by people who themselves have suffered that same affliction, that particular affliction. So grief share is led by people who have suffered grief. And divorce care is led by people who have suffered the trials of divorce. There's something about going through the fire of suffering together that cools the flame. How much more is that true of our king? Remembering that we owe him every allegiance because we owe him our very lives. Remembering that he endured more than we will ever endure to spare us the suffering that he suffered in our place. Our suffering that he took on himself. Remembering that we do not have an ivory tower king. We have a king who got his hands dirty. We have a king who leads from the front. A king who knows what it is to suffer and struggle in ways we can never even imagine. Knowing that even now, he hasn't left us. But he's standing right next to us in the fire. Knowing all that will help us to keep going. He is going to help you put one foot in front of the other to take the next step and the next step is the only one you have to take just the next one and then you will fall into his arms at the finish line so stay focused keep your eyes on the prize keep your eyes on Jesus That's the first call that our Father calls to us. Stay focused. The second one is keep going. Keep going. Keep running, even though it hurts, especially when it hurts. It's a call to endure. But our Father is so kind. He doesn't just issue a command from the sidelines. He could. It would 
be well within his rights to issue a command. He is God Almighty. He could issue a command, but he doesn't. He explains himself. He doesn't have to, but he does. He explains why you should keep running, even though it hurts. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Why do you have to endure suffering? For the sake of discipline. Who's excited by that answer? You suffer for the sake of discipline. Discipline is not exactly trending at the moment. But can I ask you just to suspend judgment for just just for a moment and let's listen to what our Father has to say on the topic because he has much to say on this topic of discipline. So he's going to tell us about, he's going to speak to us about the nature of discipline and the motive of discipline, the goal of discipline, and then how we should respond. We're going to take a detour into discipline under this call to keep going, right? The nature of discipline, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. What I love about the Bible is its candor. Our Father is just so honest with us. There's no airbrushing, there's no sugarcoating, there's no wishful thinking. He's straight. This is going to hurt. That's the opposite of our cultural strategy, isn't it? The self-medication and the denial. We just deny pain until it catches up with us. No, our Father helps us to look our enemy in the eye. But then he reminds us that suffering is not for suffering's sake. It's not just empty, meaningless suffering. Suffering is for the sake of discipline. I think it's no accident that the English word discipline comes from the same root as the word disciple. Discipleship, fixing on your, your eyes on Jesus and following after him, no matter what it takes, discipleship involves discipline. Verse 11 goes on to speak about those who have been trained. Can you hear the language of discipline? Who have been trained by the pain of discipline. Discipline involves training. Training is just learning through repetition. And in this particular instance, it is the process of learning through repeatedly enduring a lesser pain in order to avoid a greater pain. Getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning and running 15 kilometers before sunrise, before work, is painful, so I'm told. (laughs) But it is nothing. It is nothing compared to the pain you will experience if you arrive on race day at the Comrades Marathon and you have not trained. Then you are going to enter into a whole world of pain. The suffering of discipline protects you from a greater suffering. When you tap a toddler on the wrist, they may be shocked and cry. But that's nothing compared to the shock they're going to get when they stick that gobby finger into the plug socket. The suffering of discipline protects you from a greater suffering. Now what is this greater suffering? Because the suffering of discipline is no small suffering. I mean, this church, in the letter we are looking at this morning, this church is being persecuted. Some of the people have had their 
property plundered. Others have had their personal freedom taken from them. They are in prison. Some of the heroes of the faith in chapter 11 died in the most horrendous, unspeakable ways. So what could be worse than that? The answer our preacher gives over and over and over again to the question, what could be worse than that suffering? The answer our preacher gives is falling away from God. It's the whole message of this letter. Our Father, your Father, does not for one moment make light of your suffering. Not for one moment. He knows how severe it is. He knows how bitter it is. And that's precisely why he wants to use it to help you avoid something even worse. Something even worse. The excruciating state of God-forsaken abandonment that Jesus endured when he hung on that tree. Our Father will not let us suffer in vain. He just won't. He takes that pain. He turns it. He uses it to protect you from something even worse. As you, in your pain, press deeper into Christ, focus on Him, fix your eyes on Him, the closer you draw to Him, the stronger you are, the safer you will become. That's your Father using the process of suffering for your good. God is not the cause of evil in your life. But he does take it and turn it and use it for your good. That's the nature of discipline. It begins to give us some insight into the motive for discipline. Why does God do this? Why does he discipline us in this way? Pick it up in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you hear it? Do you hear the motive for discipline? It's crystal clear, isn't it? The motive is love. Verse 6 can't state it any clearer. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Some uh, context, cultural context will help us here. In the ancient world, your firstborn son stood to inherit not only the family fortune, but more importantly, the family name, the family reputation. And so the essence and the existence of the family depended on him. It was an enormous honor. But again, more than that, it was an enormous responsibility. And so fathers would invest heavily in preparing their sons for this very taxing role. They would discipline their sons out of love because to leave them unprepared for that role would be an unspeakable cruelty. Discipline in that context, and it's the discipline to which the writer is referring to, 
Discipline was an act of love. In fact, discipline was integral to love. There was no fatherly love apart from discipline. You didn't bother to discipline other people's children. Discipline proved your fatherly love. Now, I know that this can sound very strange to our ears, Midrand 2022. Firstly, because it's open to such abuse, right? We, not, we all have heard or have experienced, tragically, terrible abuse in the name of discipline. But let me put this to you. The discipline of which the writer is speaking, of which God is speaking, if training is the nature of discipline and love is the motive of discipline, and true love is the motive of discipline, then it rules, it rules out abuse. Abuse is impossible, or at least very, very unlikely. When punishment is the nature of discipline and entitlement, anger, revenge, the motive, well, then we're no longer talking about biblical discipline. We're now talking about abuse. Do you see the difference? The second reason it sounds so strange to our ears is that discipline is so last season. Remember, the whole analogy is based on our understanding of parental discipline. And in our understanding of parental discipline, well, discipline is last season. Right? It's become popular to view parenting as standing back, allowing your child to become themselves. Free play, free learning, organic self-discovery, endless becoming. Friends, that kind of thinking is more rooted in French Enlightenment philosophy than it is in the Bible. It was Rousseau who believed in original innocence. Children are born perfectly pure and then gradually corrupted by society. And parents, you are society, by the way. So step back and try not to corrupt your child's inner purity. That's your role. Step back and hands off their inner purity. In fact, you should defer to them. They know better. They are closer to the source of purity. They are the future, to quote a song. And they are still pure. So don't stand in their way. Don't pollute them. Don't constrain them with your rules. Set them free to discover themselves and express themselves. That's love. Sound familiar? Problem is, if we ask our kids to look inside themselves, what they find there is not going to be pretty. We don't believe in original innocence because the Bible and our very common sense everyday experience take us in the opposite direction. Our kids are not born innocent. You don't need to teach a toddler what to do in the queue while you're waiting for the cashier. They come with that I want a sweetie now tantrum already downloaded. We don't believe in original innocence. We believe in original sin. And let me ask you, Monsieur Rousseau, if we are all born perfectly pure, where does the corruption in society come from? 
No. We are all a mixed reality from birth. Made in the image of God, but corrupted by sin. Capable of the most extraordinary kindness and goodness and love. But also capable of the most unspeakable wickedness and evil and cruelty. All of this is to say, the opposite of love is not discipline. The opposite of love is indifference. It's not loving to let a toddler express themselves into the plug socket. Love intervenes. And if they insist on their destructive behavior, you may have to introduce a lesser pain. Introduce that lesser pain to spare them a greater pain. The rude shock of the pain that comes when we are left to ourselves. If discipline is painful training and God disciplines those he loves, if, dif- if discipline is actually a form of communication, a form of, a form of love that communicates to us that we are his children, if that's what discipline is, if that's what the Lord's discipline is, a form of communication that says to us, I love you, you are my children, then what's he hoping to achieve by it all? What's the goal of this discipline? Verse 10. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. When it comes to discipline, some of our fathers, and it's not everybody's experience, I'm really am sensitive to that, but some of our earthly fathers did the best they could. And of course, the results were mixed because they are a mixed reality just as we are a mixed reality, our fathers. The extraordinary thing about our heavenly father is that his discipline and the suffering that goes along with it is always for our good. Always. And only for our good. Ultimately. What is our good? Now there's a question. What is our good? What is this good that our Father wants for us? He answers in verse 10. That we may share in His holiness. Paul says something similar in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things, and if you read the chapter, you'll see what he means by all things. He is talking about all the pain and struggle and suffering of this life. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what is this good that God wants for us? To be conformed to the image of his son. To share in God's holiness, which is our supreme good, is to be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Jesus in increasing measure from one degree of glory to another. The purpose of discipline is that. The purpose of discipline is holiness. The preacher goes on to tell us the purpose of holiness. Verse 14, he reminds his people that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
The goal of discipline is holiness. The goal of holiness is that we might see the Lord. Remember what Jesus said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Discipline is training us, preparing us for that day. For that day. The day we see God. In preparation for that day, discipline is training us to be who we already are in Christ Jesus. So the ultimate goal of discipline is that we see the Lord, not in part, but in full, not through a mirror dimly, but face to face. See the Lord. That's where the race ends. That's the finish line. That's falling into the arms of Jesus, bruised, battered, exhausted, filthy, but full of joy. Full of joy as you look into his eyes. And he looks into your eyes. And he says those words that our hearts are aching with longing to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. You made it. You are here. That's where it ends. That's the goal. That's what's waiting for us at the end. But the Lord in his kindness and his grace and his mercy to us encourages us for the journey now. How does he do it? He lets us have a taste of home in this life. Verse 11 says that discipline yields the fruit of peace and righteousness for those who are trained by it. And we've seen this. We see it in our brothers and sisters who have gone through enormous suffering. After the passing of of time, of seasons, of years, of decades, we see it in them. The peace and righteousness that our our writer is is referring to. There's often a, a quiet calm in their lives. Have you noticed it? A depth to their devotion that you just can't manufacture in any other way. That kind of faith can only emerge from the refiner's fire. There's no shortcut. F.F. Bruce says, To see the Lord is the highest and most glorious blessing that mortals can enjoy. But that beatific vision is reserved for those who are holy in heart and life. In other words, we need discipline. We need it. Discipline serves our greatest possible good. Our greatest possible good is to see the Lord face to face. And discipline will help to get you there. If that's the nature, the motive, the goal of discipline, how should we respond? What's the appropriate way to respond? Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? In a word, the, the appropriate response is submission. We respected the flawed efforts of our earthly fathers. How much more should we, should we not respect the perfect discipline of our heavenly Father that is always for our good? 
And submission is just trust expressing itself as obedience. It's just trust expressing itself as obedience. We may not. In fact, we, it's very unlikely that we will understand everything that the Lord is doing in and through our suffering in the moment. That is very unlikely. It's just not our experience. But we can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust that whatever he's doing, we won't know what it is, but whatever he's doing, it is for our good. Now, how do you do that? How do you trust him when every fiber in your being is tempted to go in the other direction, in the heat of suffering? What is that trust based on? We've come the full circle. We're back where we started. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him. Contemplate him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You can trust God. You can trust your heavenly Father because He gave you His Son. He gave you Himself. There's nothing else to give. And in fact, there's nothing else to receive. And so we have to say, when we stop to think about it, we have to say God is the only one worth trusting. He's the only safe place to invest your trust. Everything else will let you down in the end. How do you know if you are trusting God? What's the measure? Well, in this passage, it's very clear. You answer his call to stay focused on Christ, to keep going, to endure for the sake of discipline, to be brave, and to watch out. The call to be brave comes in verse 11. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. Here is our Heavenly Father saying to us, it's going to be okay. Come on, up you get. Up you get. Let's get back in the race. It's fine. I'm with you. We're going to do this. Let's go. And because you trust His wisdom and you trust His love for you, you're also ready to hear the warning. Watch out. Don't be like Esau in verse 16, who was so determined to avoid suffering that he traded God's blessing for a meal. He traded away his holiness and his fellowship with his father for comfort, for a plate of stew. That's how fickle we are, people. That's how real the temptation is. In your suffering, when you are tempted to sin, don't be like Esau and trade your godliness for self-indulgence. That's the call to watch out. The threat is ever-present. It's real and we are fickle. Don't trade your godliness for self-indulgence. Verse 17 warns us that it only ends in tears. What are we saying? 
Christian life is a race. It's a marathon. As we're running it, there's a great crowd of witnesses cheering us on. And amongst those voices, clearest and supreme amongst those voices is our Father, who is calling us to stay focused on Jesus. Focus on Him. Be brave. Take courage. Take heart. Keep going. And know, know that the Lord disciplines those He loves. Your suffering is never in vain. That's our passage. Let me just close with this. I realize that when we talk about suffering, I am entering onto sacred ground because suffering is so personal and so intimate and so close to the essence of who you are. And glib answers just don't help. I get that. So if you hear anything today, just hear this. Because you have a Father in heaven who loves you, your suffering is not in vain. It's not just meaningless pain that achieves nothing. He can take it. He can turn it. He can use it for your good. And He will. He does. That's the promise. How can I be so sure? How can I say that, stand here and say that with anything like conviction, given what you are going through? How can I be so sure? The cross. The cross of Christ. If your Father can take the deepest possible human evil, that's what the cross is, and He can turn it to the hour of humanity's greatest triumph, that's what the cross is. If He can do that with the cross, He can turn your suffering to good. And He will. And that's why, brothers and sisters, that's why in our suffering we must look to Jesus. We must. The God who knows what it is to suffer. The man who knows what it is to suffer and keep the faith to the very end. Look to Him and know for certain that He is standing next to you in the fire. You are not alone. He is with you. Let's pray. Father, you know our pain better than we do. And you know that pain is so personal, Lord, and so intimate, and it's so hard for us to understand why. Father, in our pain, help us to trust you, to trust your love for us, to trust your power. Help us to know that you love us and you are always working all things for our good. 
Help us to keep going. And as we do, work in us the peace, the righteousness, and the holiness that remind us of our destination, remind us of our, that we are headed for home. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ until we see him face to face. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.